Good morning. I'd like to wish you a happy Sabbath. I'm glad to uh, be back on Heartland campus this morning. It's good to see familiar faces, friends, family, um, in a way, yes. Today, what we're doing for our Sabbath school is not going to be a sermon. I'm afraid I scared maybe the media team a little bit. They did not look scared, I will clarify that. Very professional. But we are going to have some discussion. And so if you do have a Sabbath school lesson on you, we will be looking at our Sabbath school lesson. Uh, If not, I know that you also can find it on the Internet. Um, Not that I'm encouraging Facebooking right now, but I definitely could check out that. Powerful families have affected our world for a very long time. In fact, if you look at the history of our world, you'll see that powerful families have done much. If if I were to ask you, what are some names of powerful families that have affected or influenced our planet? Um, Any names that come to mind? Rockefeller. Okay, I heard that. Yes. Rothschilds. That's right. Oh, yes. The Medici. The Medici, that's right. I see there's a historian in that middle row. I'm listening to you, ma'am. Yes. Any other families or names that come out as you're thinking? Maybe the Habsburgs, right? Um, uh, Those who are familiar, um, Khan, right? Genghis Khan and those who are connected with that. And then recently, even in the United States, we have certain families that really affect what takes place in our United States, yes? Uh, Some are familiar with the Kennedy family, um, the Bush family. These are large political families, and there's others. But there is a family that has affected the course of our history as as a world more than any other, and that's some man named Noah and his prodigy, Right? So if you don't mind turning with me to the book of Genesis chapter 9, that's where our lesson picks up. I'll be asking several questions as we go through, but let's start in Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. We'll be beginning with verse 18. Now, the story that we see being given here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, is a very unique one. Um, And the question that you saw in your quarterly was, why would we have such a strange story? What, What is the message that's trying to be given to us? So let's read through it and know that this is the question we are going to be asking ourselves. I just... uh... Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, it says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward. 
and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. A unique story. A story that tells of three sons' reactions to the impropriety of their father. My question would be, and by the way, if you would like to speak, I think we would just raise your hand and someone will bring a mic to you. That way you can, can be heard. What is the message that's trying to be shared with us today as we're looking at this story of Ham? By the way, we will be looking at Shem and Japheth as we go through. But what, what is the, the message? Uh, why this strange story? What is the purpose of it being told? I smiled when I looked at this. One. I thought this is not going to be a, a, a great jump in and talk about story. I recognize that. Um, but if there's something you're studying, you wanted to share, I don't want to, to miss out. Yes, uh, we have a hand up here on the front row. I don't know, a lesson for me uh, was honor your father and mother where um, Ham discovered his father naked and he didn't have to tell anybody. Okay, yes, thank you. Um, we got a hand in the back. And again, I'm, that is definitely a lesson we see coming out here is respect for parents, yes? Uh, in addition to that, uh, well, they are the good parents or the bad parents, we should have to honor them. Uh, in this case, Noah did not behave very well himself by getting drunk, but he still did not deserve the dishonor that he received. Interesting point. Thank you, sir. So uh, here we have a father who's clearly not doing something that would be uh, wise. Um, and yet we see this kind of response. We have another hand here, center on the, on, on the aisle. It's after the flood. Did Noah know that wine would make him drunk? Maybe wine had uh, different characteristics than before. I don't know. There has been major changes that have taken place. Yeah, so we have a hand over here on the right-hand side. Again, we're looking at, as while well, the mic's coming, we're looking at this story. Lessons that we can garner from this story um, we won't spend too much more time, but I, we'll take another hand or two. Yes. So if I understand your question right, you're asking why did God feel the need to put this in there, right? I'm uh, just making sure. Yeah, yeah. What is, what is the purpose or the message of this story? Yes. Yes. My, from what I can see, you know, God chose Shem to be, and his lineage, to carry on the important, oh, and he gave them the honor of, perpetuating the lineage so that the Messiah Amen. could go th through it. Amen. And I think this helps us to see a little bit more clearly the character of Shem and Japheth and why God chose them so it wouldn't be God had favorites, but that we could be able to see, you know, here's another reason why I've chosen the lineage of Shem so that the Messiah could come through his lineage. I, this is my speculation. Amen. So I'm hearing you mention the fact that the Bible is all about Jesus, right? And so the promised seed is going to be coming through Shem, and this is a chance to highlight the character of Shem. Okay. I see a couple, couple more hands, and then I will 
go on to our next question and, and open up a little bit. Yes, go ahead, brother. I, I just want to say that um, every time I read this story, it just um, it's so powerful that that um, first of all that um, these this family was saved out of the old world. You know, and those these were the first people to step into the new world, so to speak. And um, and God had committed to this family to to repopulate the whole earth. And to me, that's a that's a blessing, number one, and also is an honor, you know, that he, that he saved them out of all the people that was living during that time period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if I were to ask you here, how many of you are related to Noah? I would assume I'd get all hands. So uh, this is our heritage. Am I right that we're reading about? This is our family. Um, I have a friend of mine. Uh, uh, who, who mentioned it this way. He said, we often talk about races, and the reality is we're one human race. And uh, we're all one family, and uh, that's, that's always good to remember. All right, so there is, uh, I'm glad you brought out the point of the connection with Shem and Japheth, because I think that's a big issue that comes out here too. We see a, a difference in response between Shem and Japheth and Ham, um, the lesson did something a little interesting. And for sake of time, I'm going to just continue on. I'm trying to keep track of it. I, I, I do see your hands. I, you already have the mic in your hand? Please, go ahead, ma'am. Oh. I'm sorry, I could not. <laughs> um, I was just going to make an observation um, in, in this story. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know how many of you have had honey a container of honey that crystallizes and you try to decrystallize it, it's not possible unless you get all of the crystals out because they will come back. And sin is just like that. And even though God preserved a family, there was still a core problem. Thank you for bringing that out. You know, as we're looking uh, on this, this next step, I found it an interesting connection. I don't know if you felt this way when you were studying the lesson, but connecting this story with Genesis chapter 3. Yes? So the, the idea of Noah drinking the wine, being uncovered, his son seeing him, and then you have Eve eating, and they are and Adam, and they are uncovered, right? Um, what are some um, similarities that, that you see, that maybe a lesson that you could take from these similarities? Again, these are from the lessons, so I'm just kind of jogging your memory, if you will. Some similarities or lessons from the similarities between this story of Noah and the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Yes, I see a hand over here. Good morning. Um, yes, good morning. Well, one similarity that I noticed between Adam and Eve and um, Noeline uncovered drunk um, is that once a person is in a state of sinfulness, that typically um, it can be revealed in their nakedness and how they carry themselves. Um, and it's often, as I said, linked to, to sin. Um, sometimes we, 
we walk around and we don't realize that we are physically in a state of sinfulness based on how we reveal our nakedness to the world. All right, thank you. Thank you. Go ahead, brother. No, yeah, you know, it, it just really shows how quickly sin degenerates, you know, us as human beings, you know, because especially when you think about Adam and Eve, literally just one generation after Adam and Eve had fallen into, you know, sin and, and degradation, there was murder that came into the human family. <laughs> and then, you know, when you see, you know, the experience of uh, knowing his descendants, it just really shows you that though they were saved on the ark, yes. their minds had been so influenced by the perverse practices of the antediluvians that Ham was, you know, as it were, led to do what he did. And it's really interesting, you know, because in Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, this is on page 112, just really quickly, it says, the unnatural crime of Ham declared the filial reverence had long before mm -hmm. been cast from his soul. Yes. Now, you know, it, it, it's been mentioned, you know, when I used to read the story, I was kind of confused as to why it was such a big deal that he saw his father's nakedness. You know, because there are times, you know, when you, you know, may, you know, see your parent uncovered or whatever may have you. But it's interesting. This is a thought. In Leviticus 18, it talks about unlawful marriages. And uh, I don't know if we've uh, looked at this before, but it says, the nakedness of thy father. This is verse 7. It says, the nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother, thou shalt not uncover. She is thy mother, and thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Now in verse 8, it says, the nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. So in actuality, it might have been possible that it was actually uh, Ham's mother, Noah's wife, that he actually saw uncovered. And the crime that he committed might have actually have been incest as opposed to just seeing his father's nakedness. So that makes sense. It's an interesting thought. Thank you. I think that's something that really stands out here. Um, and again, I appreciate you quoting Patriarchs and Prophets, um, the page 112. The idea was respect for his family. His, his parent was gone. Uh, there's something else that comes out, and that's related to the curse, and that is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 117, comments on this. It simply says the curse was, not, was a foretelling of what was going to take place because of their character. I think that's important for us to realize. Sometimes we look at a curse, and a curse is, is something that's uh, supernatural, that comes down on you and takes you out. Whereas it's described here in Patriarchs and Prophets in relation to this story that a curse was simply a foretelling of what the character was. Does that make sense? And so because this character is going to do this and this, you are cursed, if I could put it in that way. Very important. <clears throat> do you see any, um, as we look at the genealogy, we're going to be looking at that next. As we look at the genealogy that takes place, we realize that there is uh, some descendants of Ham that have some rough characteristics. Um, if you are familiar with the, the biblical lands, and you have the picture, I'm sure most of you all are, the land of Canaan was a land that was full of some pretty rough sins. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, are quoted in our lesson as one of those places that were affected by that. Um, what was the prediction about Shem and Japheth? 
was there. Uh, it's verse 26 and 27, and I will, for, for sake of ease, I'll read it. And then if someone would like to just briefly comment, if not, I think it's, it's probably self-explanatory. We'll go on to our next part. And he said, uh, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. I, I'm a person who likes maps very much, and so I could not resist looking at the, the Bible commentary, looking at the layout of the different descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and you will recognize that sometimes they're almost in the same place, but there are some general areas. Um, the descendants of Ham generally were Canaan. I'm going to try to do this uh, backwards. Canaan, Africa, parts of Arabia. And if you were looking at the descendants of Japheth, they were more further north, going this direction. And if you were looking at the descendants of Shem, they were there in the center. Um, yet there's this mix. Uh, it's not a, a perfectly geographically set up. There was a mix in between uh, of these people. And it says that God is blessing. Where is the blessing of Shem? Is Shem, yes, he had, uh, obviously, uh, you see something about his character, right? But what is the big blessing of Shem? It's already been mentioned, right? He is the bearer of the Messiah to come. And so that's a, a very important point. All right, Genesis chapter 10. And we are looking at <clears throat> genealogies. And as, uh, as you're turning to Genesis 10, we are going to be uh, not reading the entire chapter. But there are certain things that stand out in Genesis 10. It is a list of different people. Let's read a few verses just so you get a feel for what it looks like. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tyrus. And it goes on and it lists all these people. But it does it. Here's Noah. Here's his three sons. And let me list the descendants of each son. Why does God give genealogies? We have it in Genesis 10. We have it in Genesis 5. We're going to be looking at a little bit. What is the purpose? Based upon what you've studied or what you've read in your lesson, what is the purpose of a genealogy? Why would God give that? Okay, I see a hand. Yes, go ahead. Do you have a... A mic nearby. It's coming. You just put your hand up real quick. Thank you, ma'am. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the creator of the first family, Adam and Eve. He cares about generations. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins, and will not by any means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. So God is the God of families. Even when he identifies his name, he says that he will forgive thousands of generations. He has mercies on thousands of generations. And the curse extends to the third and fourth generation. So it's in him. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Godhead. So it's... He's a family. He's the God of family. So genealogies is the show that God is a God of families. He's a God of families. Okay. 
Yes. Yeah, there, um, there's two thoughts. One, they're connected here in just this quote from the Desire of Ages that uh, I'll read it here. It says, The Savior regards with infinite tenderness the souls whom he has purchased with his own blood. They are the claim of his love. He looks upon them with unutterable longing. His heart is drawn out, not only to the best-behaved children, but to those who have by inheritance objectionable traits of character. Many parents do not understand how much they are responsible for these traits in their children. They have not the tenderness and wisdom to deal with the erring ones whom they have made what they are. But Jesus looks upon these children with pity. He traces from cause to effect. So uh, that last sentence, he traces from cause to effect. And, uh, the, and you know, I think when I think about uh, the message to Laodicea, Jesus introduces himself as the faithful and true witness. So for me, I think of when I read the lineages is Jesus revealing to us himself as that faithful and true witness who really takes care of those details and pays attention to those cause and effects. Thank you. Uh, do we see cause and effect in genealogy? Do we see cause and effect of faith in genealogy? Genealogy shows a lot. Um, and yes, there is that ability to trace. I see hand over here. Um, I'm in agreement with all of those. There's another, another aspect, yes. and that is that, you know, God, um, as you look at the genealogies in Genesis, you see, um, you see two groups of people <laughs> that began way back at the beginning, and it continues through history. Um, that's one thing. Another thing that it shows is that um, as you look at the genealogies, immediately following them, uh, often there's an event that is connected to why the genealogy was given. And um, it also lays the foundation that this is a historical event. This is not just some story. Um, this is concrete, real history history that God is giving us. All right, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that there's a lot of times when we're studying the Bible, this is a, a constant reminder that we're dealing with real history. Uh, this is not something that's made up, um, especially when you start dealing with some of the precision you will see in certain genealogies. This is, God is trying to tell us, um, letting us know that he is, uh, as you said, brother, a faithful and true witness. Uh, he's keeping track of it. It's a history that we can look at. And, and thank you for bringing out that point about genealogies given before a major event. That was very helpful um, for me as I'm looking at it. All right. What are some differences? Uh, if you look in Genesis chapter 5, you see this list of uh, uh, Adam has a son named Seth, and Seth has a son named Enoch. And he goes right on down through, right? As you go through and look at these, what is the difference between Genesis chapter 5, its genealogy, and the, gen and the genealogy we're seeing in Genesis chapter 10? Um, I'll give you a clue. I-T-E. I-T-E. There's a lot of ites in Genesis chapter 10. 
And you start seeing, uh, I think the word was family you were using, right? We start seeing families, uh, these are the certain-ites, and these are the certain-ites, and these are the certain-ites. And you start putting them together. Interesting enough, even when you're studying Old Testament history, during the time of Judah and Israel, there are people who are from different tribes, and they're ites. Ephraimites, yes? They're of that family, of that tribe. So they're not a different nationality. They are Israel, but they're an ite. And so there's a lot of that between in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 5, this father had this son. This son lived so long, and when he was this age, he had this son. And he lived so long, and when he was this age, he had this son. What, is the, what seems to be the purpose in Genesis 5 as you're reading through it? It's a recounting of what? Genesis chapter 5, you're starting with Adam, you're going through down to Noah. It's a recounting of what? Um, it's only listing one person at a time. I see someone pointing at you, sir. If you yell it out, I'll speak for you if you're with. It's about time. It's about time. And you can see clearly the time being laid out. Um, and it's also a recounting of uh, genealogy of Jesus, yes? Ultimately, uh, even though that his name is not spelled out specifically at this point. All right. Matthew chapter 1. Yes, go ahead, brother. We have a mic coming right to you. Um, I'd just like to say that, you know, Jesus was come from the kingdom of David. And David was promised that his kingdom would never cease. Yes. Yet when Jesus was born, the kingdom of David was almost out of existence. It, it really wasn't there. But yet he still came through that. His promise still was fulfilled. Because Jesus was, the, you know, he was the, uh, the son of David. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Do you mind turning, excuse me, Matthew 1. Let's look at Matthew 1 and we're going to, this will be our kind of our last look at this first section in our lesson. Matthew chapter 1. We look at genealogy in Genesis 5. We looked at genealogy in Genesis 10. Just briefly overviewing it. I think we're going to have to spend some more time in one story. Not as broad a picture. But as we look at Matthew 1, the genealogy in Matthew 1 has some differences from what we've seen in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10. Matthew 1 has some differences. Let's note them, if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we are going to look at verse 5. Matthew 1 and verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. There is something very different in Matthew that we haven't seen in Genesis. It sounds the same, but it's not. I've got a hand over here, man. And um, on the far right-hand side, not meaning to point, just trying to uh, give directions. Thank you. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. There is another one. Verse 6 also has this difference between Matthew and what we're seeing in Genesis. Yes, ma'am. When you asked the question initially, my mind came straight to this one. And this really is a genealogy of hope, if you really look at it. Because, you know, in most genealogies, you never see women. 
That's right. And on top of it, these were women from uh, Moab, you know, like the Moabite women, from descendants of like Ham and, you know, no, not good descendants, right? So just because you, this gives um, hope. Just because you come from a past or your family may not have served the Lord, just like it says in Ezekiel um, 18, it talks about if a man, if Ezekiel 18, it talks about um, what mean you by this proverb the, of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's <laughs> teeth are set on edge. Just because your father or your mother or your lineage may not be serving the Lord doesn't mean you now have, God's going to curse you. Amen. You understand? Yes. And um, here, you know, Ruth chose to follow her, mother, follow her mother-in-law's religion. We see um, Rahab, her whole, fam- her whole city was destroyed, but she chose to serve the living God. And as a result, they have been honored in perpeti- continuing the lineage. Um, and they're part of the lineage of the Messiah. And these weren't perfect women, but God honored them. No. That gives us hope. Amen. No, this section in Matthew, you don't see women in the genealogy per se. But here in the genealogy of Jesus, it is pointed out. And these are not just Israelite women, as you have brought out. Uh, Rahab was a Canaanite, a descendant of Ham, right? Ru- Ruth, excuse me, is a descendant of Lot, right? Via his daughters, so she's a Moabite. And then verse 6 has a woman that had been the wife of Uriah. I find that interesting. It, it's, it's spelling out, this was a bad scenario, and God is working something good through it. So genealogies not only show that there is a, a, a progression of sin, if you will, cause and effect, but it also shows cause and effect of faith. These were women and men of faith who God worked through in spite of it. Um, that's good news. I, I, I'm not preaching, but I want to ask you a question about your own descendants. Your own, not your descendants. Ooh, you shouldn't know too many of them yet, I hope. But uh, those who are your ancestors. Do some of you look at your ancestors and sometimes feel, hey, things weren't just the best? Maybe you come from a scenario or you have had pain or baggage of some kind and say, this isn't, can God use me? And the answer is, absolutely. God took Rahab. God used, I I, I always look at Ruth as good just the whole way through. What what an incredible woman. That's another story. He used David. Quite frankly, David is not a good character in this essence, right? God used these men and women who had a background that wasn't the best. No, that was bad. And God was able to override it and let them be ones to which the seed of Jesus would come. It's good news. It is good news because God is not limited to our genealogies. God can operate outside of them or within them, how you choose to look at it. All right, so we're going to go now to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, and we will pick up with probably the main story many of you remember from this lesson, and that is the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, and starting at the very beginning of the chapter. 
as we read this, um, how about I give a question ahead of time? So as we read through it, you could be thinking about what kind of answer you see in this section. Where do we see an attitude of rebellion in this first section here in Genesis chapter 11? Genesis chapter 11, we'll start with verse 1. And the whole earth was of one speech, excuse me, one language and one speech. So who is this talking of? Okay, the whole earth. Who, who, who has filled the whole earth up at this point? They're all descendants of? Noah. Noah. Of course, we all are too. But I mean, this is very recent. Yes, this is a few generations down the line. Um, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that is the mountains of Ararat, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a tower, a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So, question again. Where do we see signs of rebellion starting to spring up in this story here in Genesis chapter 11, the beginning of the Tower of Babel? Verse 4. Let's make a tower whose top may reach into heaven. That's right. So you... Why would they want to make a tower whose top would reach into heaven? If some of you have read this in Patriarchs and Prophets. It's a beautiful story. But why would they, why would they want to do that? Yes? Because they remember the past. You have a mic in your direction. I'm appreciating. I can hear you fine, but some others may not. Because they remember the past of the flood. And it says, I'm going to make a tower that reaches past the floods that drowned us in the past. So they had an issue with God destroying the earth. All right. So they knew God had destroyed the earth, right? He had covered the planet. And they said, we want to make a tower that's higher than the level of the water. Um, Patriarchs and Prophets also brings out this idea that they, they wanted to maybe possibly discern the cause of the flood. As soon as I say that, what, is, what does that kind of make you think of? Maybe God wasn't the one who did it. Maybe it was just a natural cause and we don't want to have that happen again. Is that possible? That's so close to the flood that they would forget there was a God that was connected with it. I see a hand over here. And then I see a hand here. I see two, three. All right. Uh, yes. I see it as this is the first new world order with a new world order without God. They're trying to put, take God out of the picture once again. All right. So this is a one world government that's starting here, right? Without God. Um, yes, I see uh, two hands here. Yes, ma'am. Well, but building the towel, that means they didn't believe the promise of the Lord that he will never destroy the world again by flood. Okay, so there's a lack of faith in God. Because God clearly said after the flood, I will no more cause flood waters to rise over the face of the earth. Yes, brother. So they said, let us make a name. Let us make us a name. They weren't finding their identity and their validation in God. They were trying to find it amongst themselves. That's right. If I do something great enough, maybe we will be seen and, and, and honored 
Wow. Yeah, so these are some very clear signs of rebellion that are being picked up. Yes, brother, in the back. Uh, there is another rebellion which I want to uh, try to apply to ourselves. That is Matthew 28. Because we look at here, he, God taught them to scatter, subdue the whole earth, cover the whole earth. But sometimes we ourselves want to gather around and make ourselves a big name of our own church in our own communities, forgetting that God has given us a call in Matthew 28 to go out and scatter the seeds of the gospel all over the world. So it's a lesson to us to follow God's plan, scatter. Thank you. I appreciate the personal application, sir. I had a friend of mine tell me once that salt is useless in a salt shaker, right? It needs to get out. And God is wanting his people to be salt of the earth, and we need to be scattering um, and, and not uh, salting each other. So assaulting, insulting, any kind of salting, right? <laughs> All right. No, I, I, I'm, I'm praising God. I, many of you know I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm a teacher by training in most of my life, but recently I've been pastoring. And uh, I praise God. I work with a church that doesn't spend their time assaulting and insulting. But I have been around uh, churches that sometimes, you know, have that because once someone once said this, if you don't give someone something to do, they start turning on each other. And so we don't, we don't want to see that happen. It's always good to have something to do. So thank you, brother, for that, that bringing out and that application to us. So we see some signs of rebellion, right, that are being played out here. Uh, maybe a, a lack of faith in God clearly, that God is not going to cause a flood to come again. This, this desire to, to draw attention to themselves, that we are the ones, that build a name for yourself. Um, there's a story in the Bible, of another object that was raised on a plane in the same area where the Tower of Abel was. A very interesting connection, yes. I appreciate that in our lesson. What was that other object? Yes. That's right. Thank you, brother. And Daniel chapter 3, the golden image that was raised there on the plain of Shinar. What was the purpose of that golden image? Or what did Nebuchadnezzar, let me rephrase that, what did Nebuchadnezzar use it for? It was for worship, and it was also to... It was to override, override God's prophecy and draw attention to himself. And also, if you remember in Daniel 3, how many people came to the Daniel 3 opening ceremony? Everybody gathering everyone together in one place, kind of bringing, at least in a simple way, a one-world feel uh, there in Daniel chapter 3. So yeah, very interesting connections between Daniel 3 and what we see taking place with the Tower of Babel. This attitude of not believing God, of trying to solve your own problems, fixing it yourself, getting a name for yourself, is this something that was new at the Tower of Babel? Where do we first see this mindset? That's right, we first see it in heaven, right? In Isaiah chapter 14, it tells about Lucifer. And you see this mindset already there. So, um, how is it, how do we today avoid the trap 
of trying to make a name for ourselves. How do we avoid that trap today? Yes, I've got a hand right here in the center. Uh, you can put your hand up. Thank you. Thank you, brother. And if you have uh, any, any comments, we have more mics coming around. How do we avoid today this trap of trying to make a name for ourselves? Every morning when I get up, my first prayer is, Lord, help me to allow you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Amen. But it's impossible for me to do it. So recognizing our inability, yes? Amen. You know, I have a, there's an elder at our church. He says when he wakes up in the morning, uh, he is in his upper 80s. And he goes, I walk up and I look in the mirror and say, and then he says his name, who do you think you are? <laughs> and uh, I think it's a great thing to remember. Yes, I saw a hand here. Um, Mike up here on the front left-hand side. I'm over here too. Yes, ma'am. How about while we have a mic coming here, if you could speak, please. Yes, I'd like to remind us that we, at one time, and it caused a lot of work, I mean a lot of trouble, wanted to be like the churches around us and um, be one of them and not be a cult. And a lot of changes came in through our church because of that, and we've got to be so careful that we're not following through on that line. Amen. Thank you. That's a, that's a good warning for us. Again, we're looking how you and I can today avoid the trap of trying to make a name for ourselves. And I think there is a mic coming to the front uh, on this side. Uh, it's, it's not seeing you, sir, and I'm not quite sure how to do that. All right. Go ahead, and then we have a front row here. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it would go back to the basics of we have to be truly converted. Are we experiencing that conversion experience because... When you're fully converted, and that's a daily, Galatians 2.20, crucified afresh. But it is, self is not the center, Jesus is the center. And the fruit of the Spirit is in control of our spirit. So it's definitely, conversion is the key to all our problems. Amen. All right. Yes, brother. If we understand a little bit of the condescension and humility of Christ, we really have nothing to... To gain, uh, to say, um, Philippians two five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And, and it goes on. But um, but the humility of Christ, when we see how much he humbled himself and didn't come in, you know, uh, tooting his own horn. Really, he. He lived a life of humility. There's really no place for pride in ours. Amen. The, the idea, yes. Uh, Mr. Don Ball, sir. I think John the Baptist said it the best. He must increase. We must decrease. Amen. And we must learn to pass the torch to the next generation. Amen. No, there, is a, there is a danger for us... Quite a few hands over here. So, And while the, the mic is going over, there is a danger for us today in thinking that we're worth something apart from God. And I, I know there's a self-worth mindset. I'm not trying to be unkind, but the reality is our value is in God. Our value is that we're a child of God. Our value is the fact that God lives in us. There is, that's where the value is. Yes. I'm appreciating all the beautiful answers. And, you know, 
as we speak of this in a practical and personal application, I really appreciate what God says um, when he answered uh, Nicodemus. There's nothing, oh, when he answered and said, there's nothing good in man, because when he was asked, well, you know, good master. Yes. And for me, that is a very beautiful verse, because it really pointed out back to me to recognize my condition. And when we recognize our condition, and it's a moment-by-moment -moment journey, then we realize, Lord, I can't do this. But it's mm -hmm. only when we forget that and think God's graces are our doings, then we can get boastful. Amen. No, yeah, um, uh, I'm reminded of a chapter in the book Education. It's uh, chapter 7. It's called uh, Lives of Great Men. And in that chapter, it really talks about the experience of men like Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and all these men. And she mentions that their lives show the results of true education. That, you know, Daniel and Joseph, these men, they consciously made an intelligent decision to completely subjugate themselves to the will of God. Amen. And as a result of that, the Lord was able to accomplish wonders through them. And the thing is, you know, God wants us to be great men and women as well. But greatness is not revealed in pride and self-exaltation. Uh, just as the brother said over there, you know, greatness is revealed in humility. And the more we cherish that, you know, we're told in fundamentals of Christian education that it's as a result of a lack of this steadfastness of character as to one of the main reasons why the work of God languishes today. Thank you, brother. I'd like to share a quotation, and then, uh, is that Brother Pooley? Yes, sir. It's good to see you, brother. And, and then um, we will go on to our next question. I'd like to make a quotation. Uh, it is not the capabilities we now possess or ever will possess that will give us success. It's what the Lord will do for us. We need to have far less confidence in what man can do and far more confidence in what God can do through every believing soul. This is, this is the state we need to be in. I see, actually, several hands have mics. One, two, three, and then we'll stop with those. Okay, yes, go ahead, brother. Uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me, good morning. Good morning. The word sir. says we, must, um, we should know the one true God. This is our will. This is his will. Amen. For him to know him. And so that means that uh, and it doesn't take a whole lot to look around the world and see that the mistakes of the past that mankind has made uh, when we uh, try to do our things our way, everybody can look at themselves and say that, see that, that we fall short. Um, and it also says, see in Proverbs 27:1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So we can't really kind of plan or anything outside of what God has already uh, given us. Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. Brother Pooley in the back, we'll come to you, but I saw there's a hand over here that has a mic, yes? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, well, I think how Jesus knows our hearts, and when we give our hearts to him or when we, you know, first accept him, and I, I think of the example of Ellen White and kind of what Pastor Boer was sharing last night about when the Lord went to William Foy and then to Hazen Foss. But when he went to Ellen, she knew not only the, res the responsibility, but the danger of becoming, allowing herself to become exalted. Mm -hmm. And yet I believe God and her life was not 
a cakewalk. She had a lot of yes. health problems. And I think the Lord, he knows our hearts. And I believe he keeps us humble. He knows as, as long as our heart, he has our hearts, um, he will help us to stay at his feet. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Brother Chuck. Yes. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name of, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That is the name that is above every name. We cannot make a name for ourselves. Jesus is the one we need to follow. Amen. Thank you, brother. Genesis chapter 11. Some of you don't see the signs that I'm seeing that say that I need to speed up. So if you have your hands raised that I'm moving forward, please don't take offense. I have three minutes, and I'm smiling at that. Have mercy on me. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5 through 7. This is God's response. And I think it's an important response for us to recognize as we go into it. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord did what? He came down. We can't miss this point that God came down to see what was taking place. To come down, you must be up. It goes on, it says, The Lord said, Behold, the people are one is one, it says, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand each other's speech. How does God respond? He comes down, gets involved. I believe he still does. Too. Yes, I, I heard that. Investigate. This is one thing that you see throughout the entire Bible is when something's happened, God investigates. Uh, it's not something that just shows up and someone made, a, made some theory of investigation out of Daniel chapter 8. The idea of investigation is throughout the entire Bible. And this is definitely one of those areas where we see investigation, just like we see in Genesis chapter 3. But God investigates. Uh, when Jesus comes... When God comes down, excuse me, here, is he coming in judgment or mercy? <laughs> Amen. It's both. Both judgment and mercy. Where, where do we see judgment taking place when God comes down here in Genesis 11? He confuses their languages. Uh, he separates, uh, let me put it this way, he stops their building process, right? He stops this one government. Where's the mercy? He stops the one world government and he messes up their language. Do you realize the judgment and the mercy are the same? Um, how many times do you look at what takes place in your life as judgment and God may be thinking it's mercy? Are there things that happen in your life that say, God, this is not supposed to take place to me and God is giving it to you out of mercy? Now, there's some things, obviously, I, I don't have an answer to. You don't have an answer to. There's pain, there's suffering, there's disease. And you say, God, I don't know why. And I would be the last person on the planet to think that I knew. But I do know that oftentimes what we fear and run from is what God uses for us. 
Um, The men of Babel had determined to establish a government that should be independent of God. This is a, a summary that would be good to close with, patriarchs and prophets. They had determined to establish a government that would be independent of God. Is that a good thing? No. There were some among them, however, who feared the Lord, but who had been deceived by the pretensions of the ungodly and drawn into their schemes. For the sake of these faithful ones, the Lord delayed his judgments and gave the people time to reveal their true character. How many times God does this in the history of humanity? He lets things continue. He knows where they're going. He could stop it. But he chooses to let it go so that the fruit of the rebellion is ripe and it's recognizable. Am I right? Have you seen this in the Bible of the wheat and the tares? Sometimes God lets the tares grow with the wheat because you can't recognize the tares till they're full grown. And God is doing that here. And then he says, as this was developed, the sons of God labored to turn them from their purpose. But the people were fully united in their heaven-daring undertaking. Had they gone unchecked, they would have demoralized the world in its infancy. Their confederacy was founded in rebellion, a kingdom established for self-exaltation, but in which God was to have no rule or honor. If that would have continued, what would have happened to our planet? What would have happened to God's plans? God can always make things happen, am I right? But he determined to stop it out of mercy. Where is God's love? In the Tower of Babel. We'll close with this question and thought. Where is God's love in the Tower of Babel? Yes, I see two hands over here, either one of them. If you've got a loud voice, just share it out, brother. That will, Brother, that's one of those times I wish the mic was there. And I wish I could repeat it, but I'm going to do the best I can. God has told us that the ways of the proud does bring death. And this was an issue of pride, was it not? And God said, I'm going to stop it, cause a stumbling, if you will, so that there can be an option to stop you on the path to death. Um, I praise God that he does that. I know he's done it in my own life personally, and I know that he's probably done it in many of your lives. God's caused you to stumble at times. To stop you on the path would have ended in a bad way. There's a lot of lessons today for us. Lessons from God intervening in the lives of man and doing what they didn't want, but what brought about his will ultimately. I know God has an ultimate will for us. I know that. God has given each one of you a reason for existence. You're not here without reason. Whether you're a student, whether you're a staff, whether you're a friend or family or a guest, God's brought you here for a reason. May we submit to his moving in our hearts. Can we pray? Father, we recognize it is not us that has what is necessary, but it's Jesus who has what is necessary. We ask, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, fill us, and give us courage, Father, to walk in the paths of your choosing. Help us to recognize your love in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.